Well, it was quite disappointing really, um, and of, of quite concern. We'd been dropped off at a railway station to, to get a um, train ride home, and one of the chaps on the crew went and bought a paper and read our obituary in the paper, saying that all the crew on Alamander 2 had been lost, which wasn't true at all, because we looked at one another and we were all there. Fastnet Rock, uh, reaching quite happily with a full main at number three up, and it wasn't till just bang on midnight, it was just like a switch being turned on, it was suddenly 60 knots, and the boat just laid over and, and the sails were flapping and the boat was shaking, and um, that's when we first knew we, <laughs> we were in a bit of strife. daylight we could now look out of the window and look at these massively high walls of grey water coming at us thinking how on earth are we going to get over the tops of those and the boat water would just flip on its side and go up up the waves and tip over across the top and down occasionally there'd be a breaking wave though and that would be quite messy it was at that point it was becoming worrying and we were concerned for our safety Steve Ashley was an 18-year-old sailmaker living in England when he was asked to crew on a 34-foot yacht for the 1979 Fastnet race. Little did he know, like the rest of those scattered on the 303 boats who took part that year, he was about to be involved in one of the most notorious races of all time, and one that led to the largest combined rescue operations since the evacuation of Dunkirk in 1940. Steve talks about the lead-up to that race, the fact they received no warning about the ferocity of the storm they were sailing into, what happened when hurricane-strength winds hit in the middle of the night, and how he and the rest of the crew on board went about ensuring their survival when many others perished. He's found himself in dicey situations many times, and also talks about a notorious passage he had from Bermuda to New York, as well as his role in the early days of the Westpac rescue helicopter. Steve has many stories to tell, and it was fascinating to delve into some of those, particularly that notorious race in 1979. Joining us on the show today is Steve Ashley. Welcome. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Well, the name Steve Ashley will be recognisable to many as a, as a yacht rigger, but Steve is also an experienced ocean yachtsman and short-handed sailor and participated in one of the most notorious yacht races of all time, the 1979 Fastnet. I guess for those unfamiliar with the race, only 86 of the 303 yachts finished, 25 sunk, uh, were disabled or abandoned, and 19 lost their lives. Around 4,000 people were involved in the rescue operation, which was the largest combined rescue operation since the evacuation of Dunkirk in 1940. So, Steve, in the aftermath, you read in the papers that everyone on board the boat you had been on had perished. What was that like to read? 
Well, it was quite disappointing, really, um, and of, of quite concern. We, uh, we'd we been dropped off at a railway station to, to get a um, train ride home, and one of the chaps on the crew went and bought a paper and read our obituary in the paper, saying that all the crew on Alamander 2 had been lost, which wasn't true at all, because we looked at one another and we were all there. And um, so... At that stage, I don't know if any of the other guys had contacted their families, but I certainly hadn't contacted mine. In fact, I didn't even know that my parents knew I was in the race. I, I was flatting away from home at the time, and uh, they knew I'd done Cows Week just previously, but but I hadn't told them specifically I was doing the Fastnet race. So, as it turned out, they did know, um, but I don't think they'd yet got a paper. But no, I thought that was really bad of the media to um, to report that when it was totally untrue. So did you find yourself scrambling to let your family know you were safe? Well, it wasn't that easy. Um, we were on our way home at that point anyway. As I said, we'd been dropped off at the train station by the Navy. And so I was going to be home in, a, in about two or three hours' time in any case. And back in 79, we didn't have the luxury of mobile phones and I didn't have any money on me because that had all been lost on the boat. And uh, so, yeah, going to a pay phone to make a call, I didn't think was was necessary because, as I said, I didn't think my parents knew I was in the race, so they wouldn't have been concerned. So what was that conversation like when they, they knew you had been on it and you, you sort of said, hi, how's it going? Um, I honestly can't remember, Michael. It was a long time ago. Um, I know they were very relieved to to know that I was well, but I can't remember how the conversation went. I'm not even sure if I went home to their house or whether I'd gone back to my flat down in Hamble. They were living up in Winchester, just north of there. Well, we're obviously talking about the aftermath of what happened, so I think it's probably important that we uh, look at all of the events leading up to that. So you mentioned you were 18 at the time. How did you find yourself invited to join the famous race? Well, I was working at North Sales on the Hamble at the time. My parents, had, I was a sailmaker when I left school here, worked for Dave Giddens for a year, and then my parents dragged me off to the UK because mum wanted to see her family. And uh, I ended up staying there 18 months and got a job with North's. And whilst I was with North's, um, one of the owners of one of the new OAD 34s, which were a new class that year, uh, was having his sails made at the loft and he asked if there was a sailmaker who could um, crew on the boat for the RRC series that year. And uh, they wanted a good sailmaker and trimmer. So I was nominated by the by Norths and uh, that's how I ended up on Michael Campbell's boat. So how much ocean sailing had you done up to that point? I hadn't done a, a lot, certainly no ocean racing um, per se. Um, when I first got to the UK, before I worked for Norths, I joined the Ocean Youth Club and they had a fleet of about half a dozen 72-foot catches scattered around the British Isles. And I spent six months on and off doing um, some of the cross-channel uh, trips with them. So I gained, gained a bit of experience sailing across to France and Channel Islands and so forth. Um, and I'd done a little bit of sailing, well, I'd done the whole summer series on Alamander 
to prior to the Fastnet, which included a, a couple of races around the Channel Islands and across to France. So I've done a little bit there, but mainly prior to that, it's all been dinghy sailing back here at home. So in terms of the makeup of your crew, you know, how many were on there? Uh, what was the experience like within the, the group? There were seven of us on the crew. Michael Campbell, who was actually the nephew of Donald Campbell, the world water speed record holder at the time. Um, it was his first uh, foray into yachting, his first yacht he'd ever had. And so he was probably the least experienced. Uh, but the rest of the, the crew, the other five, were very experienced and sailed quite a lot together, I believe. And our navigator tactician was particularly experienced. Um, Michael was lucky to get hold of him. Uh, so, yeah, we had a good good, good team on board. Um, they'd done a lot of sailing together for years. They were all older than me. I was the youngest by far. And did you have sort of ambitions to do well uh, in terms of success in the race? Oh, absolutely. It was very serious. Um, Alamander 2 was, as I mentioned before, one of the new Jeremy Rogers Offshore One Design 34s, of which there were about 15 launched that year. Um, so we were all very competitive against each other. And even after three days, when we were in the Celtic Sea on the way to the Fastnet Rock, there were still you know, other OAD 34s within sight around us. So during Cow's Week, yeah, we were fiercely competitive and it was very close racing. So it was, it was very serious. We were out there to win, absolutely. So just talk to me, I guess, about the atmosphere leading up to a, a race like this. You know, it's one of the most famous races uh, in, in the world. And among the starters that year was the likes of, you know, America's Cup winner, Ted Turner. There was a young, younger Peter Blake. You know, what was the, the feeling like around the, the, the dock, I guess, leading up to that race? Yeah, there are other people like Edward Heath with Morning Cloud. Um, and I probably knew more about him living in England than I, I did about, about uh, some of the others. Um, I probably didn't take it as seriously as I would have done if I'd been older, I suppose. It was just, uh, just another race. Um, we'd already been racing alongside a lot of these guys in their boats um, for most of the summer and certainly over Cow's Week the previous week. Uh, but it was, it's still, I still get, you know, um, warm fuzzies looking back at the, um, the season. Well, I had a couple of seasons there racing at, at Cow's. And just the, the history and the, the etiquette and, um, and the prestige and, you know, the, the Royal Yacht Clubs at Cowes, and, and the, I was very fortunate that I um, uh, befriended, well, one of the crew members actually introduced me to a chap who had an apartment right on the on the river at Cowes there, and right next door was the likes of the Duke of Edinburgh's Flying 15 hanging on the wall, and there's just, yeah, just so many well-known people there, and the, the racing was just amazing, and going to the Royal Yacht Squadron afterwards, you know, and being called Sir, and and uh, waited on was pretty amazing for a, a Kiwi chap. Um, yeah, so there was a real, real amazing atmosphere there. And, and after every race over Cow's Week, there were parties at different different yacht clubs. So it was a real sort of carnival um, feel to it. Yeah, it was good fun. 
So what do you remember about those first few hours of the race? Um, because the start of the race sounded fairly unremarkable, you know, with sunny skies and I think a nice 15-knot breeze. Yeah, um, I don't remember that all that well. But yes, I do seem to remember it was like that. It was pretty benign. Um, I, it was pretty much a beat all the way down the, the south coast, southwest coast of, of England. Uh, so that first day, yeah, I do remember it being a bit sunny. The next morning it changed. Next morning we were probably halfway to Land's End and we it was very foggy. Um, we still had some breeze, but it was thick, thick fog. You could barely see a couple of hundred metres. And uh, we almost got run down by a ship, actually, um, which was a bit concerning. We could hear it hear the horn going and it got closer and closer and closer and then the ship emerged right on our bow. We had to do a crash tack to get out of its way. And uh, I remember the the older crew guys, they were really, really annoyed and they actually got some flares out and shot flares at the bridge of the ship. Um, they were just disgusted. The ship was, was motoring at speed through the whole um, fastnet fleet. No visibility. It was was nobody on watch. It appeared. Didn't see anybody in the bridge at all. Um, so that was quite interesting. You were probably yeah. hoping at that stage that was the most dramatic thing that was going to happen in that race. I'm guessing, but um, well, yeah, probably probably right. <laughs> because yeah, we carried on during the day. The fog disappeared and it became quite nice. And the next next morning, we were off land's end, pretty much becalmed, and that was the. Uh, that was the beginning of the day when the storm hit. So at that stage, did you have any sense of what might be brewing in the Atlantic? No, I wasn't aware of anything. And um, reading reading reports, um, I don't think anybody else was either. There was certainly nothing forecast, um, untoward forecast of the briefing when we started the race. And two days into it, um, there still wasn't anything in the forecast. In fact, from what I've read, the meteorologists didn't realise, and they knew there was a little low coming, but it, it wasn't anything special. And it wasn't till later that Monday afternoon of the third day uh, that they had satellite pictures and could see that the low, which was moving quite fast, but it wasn't that severe, was slowing down and intensifying. And then they became concerned, but still at the shipping report, um, which I think is around about five o'clock in the afternoon, it's, there was still nothing on that shipping report to say there was going to be gales. And they didn't uh, put out a notification until after the shipping report that there would be gales that night, by which time everyone would have turned the radio off and wouldn't have been listening to it. So I doubt whether many yachts actually knew what was coming. We certainly didn't. So when did you know that it was going to get dicey? Well, we didn't until it did, really. Um, as I said, we'd been becalmed that morning off Land's End, and the wind slowly picked up during the day. And by evening, it was probably blowing 30 knots. And as we, um, we were heading towards the Fastnet Rock, directly at that stage across the Celtic Sea, uh, reaching quite happily with a full main and number three up, no issues whatsoever. And it wasn't till just bang on midnight, it was just like a switch being turned on, it was suddenly 60 knots and the boat just laid over and, and the sails were flapping and 
bike was shaking and um, that's when we first knew we, <laughs> we were in a bit of strife. I, I hopped on the helm with the other, other chap steering and to try and get the boat to bear away so we could run downwind, but she, she wouldn't bear away. It was just lying, lying on its side kicking. So, uh, yeah, that was the first indication that things were going a bit pear-shaped. So what, do you, what happens next? You know, what do you do as a crew when, when things are unfolding like that? Right, well, you just deal with the situation just instinctively, really. So we had to get the sails down. There was only three of us on watch. It was Michael Campbell, um, who, as I said before, wasn't terribly experienced. And uh, and then there's a little little short chap um, who was helming at the time, and myself. And the boat was shaking so violently, as it would in 60 knots, with full main up. And uh, it's also, I opened up the hatch because it was time for a change of watch anyway, midnight. And the guys below were, were all putting on their weather gear and ready to come up anyway. So I opened up the hatch and said, come on, guys, we need some help to get these sails down. And then there was a bit of a noise and I looked up and the, and the rig had gone. Um, so we all spent the next 45 minutes cutting away the rig because um, it had gone over on the leeward side, obviously, and the um, spreaders were bashing bashing against the side of the hull. Uh, so my my job was to, I remember I was hanging onto the, the mast had broken round about gooseneck height, I think just below the gooseneck, between gooseneck and the bang. And uh, so I was trying to hang on and support that bottom of the mast from flailing around while all the other guys started cutting things away. Um, so yeah, that took about 45 minutes. And I remember we, we sent up some flares at that time and I can't remember exactly why the guys did. I always assumed it was just so that we had some, some light so we could see what we were doing, but perhaps they were making, making other boats aware of our situation because another, there were other yachts close, close by and one other OOD-34 actually came within hailing distance of us. And, uh, and I remember one of the chaps saying our intention was now to, to get under motor and head to Cork. Um, but as it turned out, they never heard us. I mean, trying to, trying to yell upwind and 60-odd knots of breeze, <laughs> sound doesn't travel very well. So, so the plan now, you, you know, you try to go motoring. What happens next? Yeah, so we did. Once once we cleared the rig away and tidied up, we got uh, got motoring. Um, motoring, where was it? Nor Norwesterly by then, I think. So, so I think we had the wind on the and the waves on our quarter, and we were heading to to Cork. And I went off watch at that stage because I'd been on watch since. Uh, about eight o'clock that evening, and it was now, yeah, probably one o'clock in the morning. So, um, so I went down below and went uh, had a sleep on the starboard saloon berth. And about an hour later, around two o'clock in the morning, I wake up standing on the on the roof of the cabin, and uh, it was a bit of a surprise. And and then the boat had obviously gone upside down, but it righted itself straight away. And uh, there was carnage, and yeah, it all happened just so fast. Um, 
but we knew there were guys in the cockpit, so we rushed up on, on deck and there was one guy, I forget his name, he was, everyone was harnessed on, of course. Um, he was pinned on top of a primary winch on the small of his back, just screaming in agony that his back was breaking, so we actually had to cut his harness off so to free him off that winch. And then there were another two or three guys over the side, streaming, streaming behind the boat. So we uh, pulled them on board. <clears throat> and, uh, and then we all went down below and took stock of the situation. We had quite a lot of water in the boat. Um, in fact, I've just found the, the log, uh, photocopy of the logbook. I'd forgotten I had that and only dug it out a little while ago and I've just read through that. And uh, yeah, it was a real mess inside. The, um, the washboards had disappeared. Um, and so, yeah, the hatch had been closed, but the washboards are gone. So a lot of water had gone down. We had over a foot of water inside the boat, but also the being upside down, the engine oil filler cap had come off. So quite a lot of oil was in the water as well. And we found we had no power. The batteries must have shorted themselves or God knows what happened. I, I do remember smelling battery acid. So whether they went tied down properly and broke free and broke their connections, I, I don't know. But anyway, we had no power, so we had no lights. It was just dark. We had a lot of water in the boat. Um, apart from the washboards disappearing, the stove had come off its gimbals because it hadn't been pinned down. Back in those days, there were no safety inspections and, and category requirements. So things like having lanyards on your washboards and and uh, pins across the the, uh, the, the uh, hinge supports on the stove, you just, yeah, nobody had really. I mean, it's logical now that you should, but at the time nobody really thought about it. So the stove flew off its gimbals, flew across the cabin and smashed through the, the window uh, above the chart table, which turned out to be quite a good thing in a way because um, we used the... Uh, saloon table and and part of the broken engine box to to uh, secure the hatchway, stop the waves that were breaking over the boat by this stage from washing down through the hatch too much. So we couldn't easily bail water out of there, but we, <clears throat> and we found that the bilge pumps were the um, oh, what's the box called that uh, that subs the um, all the debris anyway, that was containing being blocked up. So it wasn't, wasn't the bilge pump wasn't working very well. We even tried putting water down the toilet, but then that was getting blocked up and that wasn't working well either. So we found a saucepan and we were able to bail water out through the broken window, which was on the lured side with a saucepan. So we spent an hour doing that and got the water level down. So that turned out to be quite a good thing, really. Um, yeah, it was a real mess inside, and the motion without a mast anymore, um, with the boat being tossed around, uh, we all felt seasick. In fact, I think we all were seasick for a while, um, and it was pitch black, and uh, yeah, quite interesting. I bet, you know, is, is there ever a, is there a sense of calm? Is there a sense of panic? You know, how do you guys react to finding yourselves in a situation like this? Well, we just got on and dealt with the situation at the time. And once we got the water um, down to a reasonable level and 
sort of tidy things up. We all sat back and, and had a little think and a, a chat, chat amongst each other to make sure we were all okay. Um, somebody noticed there was one of the crew members didn't have a life jacket on at that point because all the other guys had since put life jackets on. And so they thought the youngest chap, being Steve, um, should really have a life jacket. So one of the, the older guys gave me his life jacket. I don't know what had happened to the... the it was, should have been enough for all, all the crew, obviously, but um, and the carnage probably disappeared somewhere. Um, so we all sat back and had a, had a chat, and uh, it was a, a bit concerning, and you know, our hopes of doing well in the race were over now. And uh, but we were all reasonably calm. We didn't we didn't appreciate the extent of how bad it was uh, at that stage. Because, as I said, it was pitch black. You couldn't see anything. You couldn't see the wave state. Um, we were we were getting hammered by some pretty big waves by then, um, getting knocked on our side a lot. You could just hear them, hear them roaring up and thumping against the side of the hull, and it would just knock us on our side. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we just sort of hung in there till daylight. It was... Probably, yeah, by the time we tied it up, it was probably only a couple of hours off daylight anyway. Did you, were you ever worried about the integrity of the boat? Um, we'd gone through and had a good look inside lockers and everywhere and uh, did find a crack um, on the, on the uh, starboard side, which would bring the leeward side, possibly caused from the the mast of spreaders bashing against the, the hull before we cl cleared it away. Um, but it wasn't leaking there, and we didn't appear to be shipping any water in through the hull anywhere except for the odd splash coming down the, the uh, companionway um, that wasn't boarded up as well as it would have been had we have had washboards in. Um, so, yeah, so we felt pretty safe. Um, we weren't concerned for our safety at that point. Well, I certainly wasn't. Um, perhaps if I'd had more experience and been older and, and knew what could could be happening or could happen, maybe I would have been worried. But being young there with a with a crew of older, more experienced chaps, I sort of felt pretty safe. So you're waiting for this daylight, but I understand someone was able to find a, a radio and you tuned into the BBC World Service. What what did you hear? Yeah, no, correct. So we found a little battery-powered transistor radio because uh, we hadn't got any power, as I said before, to turn on the main radio. So we listened to the BBC World Service news and then that was quite sobering um, because we heard the reports that, you know, there was this massive storm, you know, 60 to 80 knot breeze, big seas and, and boats sinking and people drowning and uh, there was a major rescue mission unfolding. And at that point, we started thinking, oh, crumbs, you know, maybe we should be worried. This is probably worse than what we thought it was. And, and of course, not having seen a, a, a decent forecast or a weather map, we didn't know how long this was going to go on for and how much worse it was going to become. Um, and it was now daylight. We could now look out of the window and look at these massively high walls of grey water coming at us, thinking, how on earth are we going to get over the tops of those? 
and the boat boat water would just flip on its side and go up the up the up the waves and tip over across the top and down. Occasionally there'd be a breaking wave though, and that would be quite messy. But um, yeah, it was at that point it was becoming worrying, and we were concerned for our safety because we'd lost our life raft at that stage. Um, so we had, if anything happened to the boat, we had no communications and no way of getting off and surviving, really. How did you lose the life raft? Well, when we got dismasted, after we cleared away the, the rig and started motoring, we put the raft that had been stowed inside the boat into the cockpit and it was tied on with its tether, but I don't know whether it was tied on any better than that, whether it was just sitting there. So when we got rolled upside down, the uh, raft got loose and when we came upright again and after we pulled the guys in and out of the water, we noticed that um, the raft had gone and then we could see it in the distance streaming off the bow. And um, I, with another crew member, went up to the bow and we spent oh, 20, 20 to 30 minutes trying to pull the raft back into the boat. It was upside down and acting as a drogue. And uh, we eventually got it alongside the boat and flipped it upright again. Um, the top top ring had, had punctured, so only the bottom ring was inflated. We tied it to lured, um, just lured of the cockpit. Um, but during the night, by morning, it was gone. Yeah, in the logbook, I've just read, we think maybe around about four o'clock in the morning, it disappeared. So you talked about being able to see the waves as daylight came. Was it almost easier in the pitch black because you couldn't see how dangerous things were for you at that point? Absolutely. I mean, we didn't realise how huge these waves were. I mean, there were there were reports of them from the um, from the navy of being you know over twenty metres, you know, sixty foot waves. Um, in our logbook, I've just read that uh, when we got rolled over, um, the guys on deck estimated that the wave must have been, the one that hit us, must have been between 40 and 60 feet. So they were pretty huge and they were steep. They weren't just rolling waves, they were just steep walls of water. Yeah. Were you ever worried about crashing into another boat, given how powerless you were uh, to do anything? Uh, it never crossed our mind. Um, it was, yeah, we'd never even thought about that at all. Um, during the time when you could see in daylight um, to the time we got rescued later that afternoon, um, it was probably about 11 hours, we only ever saw one other yacht, a smaller yacht than us, drift, drift past us. They still had a mast up, so they uh, were drifting faster than us. Um, and the only other vessels we saw were um, a, uh, a Dutch destroyer and, um, yeah, we saw some helicopters and planes. But, yeah, so, no, that never crossed our mind. Um I suppose looking back on it, it was a possibility because we had been motoring for a, a look, well, not for very long now, so we wouldn't have made a lot of a lot of way off off the course of the rest of the fleet. But everyone else probably would have been laying a hull like we were during the night. 
<clears throat> so drifting about the same speed, I guess. And uh, yeah, it's a big ocean out there, although there were a lot of boats around us when the storm first hit. I mean, it doesn't take long for boats to sort of scatter. Um, so yeah, we, we didn't think it, ne never thought about that situation, no. So the morning comes, you can see what situation you find yourselves in. What is the plan now? Okay, well, once once we had daylight there we and the seas were starting to abate a, a little bit, um, by, by about lunchtime we, we actually put somebody in the cockpit and uh, to keep a watch out for other boats. And, uh, and as the day progressed, the, uh, the sea state and the wind did start going down. And so more of us were going outside. And um, by, by about five o'clock in the afternoon, I think, um, oh, hang on, what did it say in the logbook here? I think around about four, four o'clock we saw um, Billy Bones, a little half-tonner, we were a three-quarter tonner, little half-tonner drift by. Um, and about 5.30, we all went on deck. The breeze had probably dropped down to 30 to 40 knots by then, and the seas had certainly settled down dramatically. Um, and we started rigging up a jury rig. So we got the spinnaker pole set up and some rope stays all set up, and we just got that hoisted and had the storm jib ready to hoist up on that. And we were quite quite confident we could um, sail home. Uh, yeah, so where where would you have gone to? Um, with the way the breeze was blowing at that stage, we would have headed back to to the UK, back to the or, or across to the Bristol Channel. Actually, yeah, we've got in the logbook here. So that's a little bit uh, north of the um, bottom of England. But you never got that chance, did you? So, no. so what, what happened? So, yeah, so we were just about to hoist the storm jib up and get sailing when a, um, a two-tonner, uh, I think it was Cayman 2, um, motored, motored up alongside us. And we yelled to them, you know, could they relay our position and let us know that we had no communications, we had no flares left. Um had no life raft, and could they organise a tow for us? And while we were yelling at them, there was this uh, roaring noise and a big seeking helicopter came hovering over us. And uh, a chap came down on, on, a, on a wire and grabbed hold of the first person he could, who happened to be the owner, Michael. And I remember Michael saying, oh, I'll just go up and check on the weather. Well, of course, he never came back again. And... Uh, the, uh, the winch, winch guy came came back down and grabbed somebody else, and um, we were being forced off. Basically, we had no choice, um, which I was a little bit perturbed about because uh, I was sort of looking forward to the adventure of, of sailing a jury rig boat home. Um, but anyway, they started just dropping the sling down after that, and the guy started going up, and I thought. Christ, you know, I've just gone out. I'm a poor sailmaker. I've just gone out and bought a new blazer and trousers and shoes for the prize giving at Plymouth. So I raced down below and I stuffed my shoes down my boots and my blazer and the trail inside my jacket. And uh, so when it, when the sling came down for me, I had all, all my new gear with me. Um, 
but a, a very important lesson I learned then is that if, if, you, if a sling does come down, don't touch it until it touches the boat first, particularly if it's from a big seeking helicopter like we had. Probably not so bad with the helicopters we have in New Zealand, but there was a massive static shock which threw me back across the cabin top when I grabbed hold of it. Um, so uh, when the sling came back again, there was still quite a reasonable sea state at this this time, so the helicopter guys were pretty amazing with how they performed. But anyway, when the sling came back within reach this time, I let it touch the cabin top first before I put it on, and then they winched me up in the chopper. I was the second to last person to, to get pulled up. And where did you get taken? From there, we flew flew a few miles away to that little yacht that I mentioned before, Billy Bones, and uh, picked up, they were a French crew, and we picked all, all, all those guys up first, and they all came up just in their undies, which we thought was a bit interesting. Um, but the French were trained to, if they were ever going to be winched off a boat that had a rig up, that they'd all that they'd jump in the water um, to get winched out of the water, rather than trying to be winched off and, and have the, the winch cable... Uh, get tangled up in the rigging. So we picked all those guys up and uh, then they flew us off to um, to the Royal Navy um, base in Coldrose in Cornwall. It's a big helicopter base. In fact, it's one of the biggest in Europe. And they are very good. They looked after us really well there. They, they gave us a, all the medical examination, a hot bath and, uh, and a, a hot feed. Remember baked beans, bacon and eggs and toast and hash browns, I think. Yeah, it was good feed. And uh, gave us a dry bed for the night. And next morning um, took us down to the local train station so we could get home. I'm guessing when you went to the base, you probably caught up with various reports about the severity of the storm and the impact it had on the loss of life and equipment. You know, was that quite sobering? and make you feel like perhaps you'd been quite lucky? Um, yes, you're right. We, we did consi- consider ourselves lucky, but um, that we'd got, got through the storm when other, other people hadn't. Um, I, I suppose at the time we, we didn't, well, I didn't give it a huge amount of thought and didn't appreciate how lucky we were. Um, because we got through it and we, you know, we were rigging up a jury rig and we were going to get home. So I figured we were all okay. But, and I didn't know anybody, well, at that stage, I didn't know who had been lost. Um, but yeah, it was very sobering. And, uh, but we were still, you know, I guess in a, a little bit of a state of shock and everything had been ha- happening so fast. We didn't give it, give it any deep and meaning, meaningful thought at that stage, probably. Mm. Were you ever offered any sort of support to help deal with any of the trauma, I guess, of what have happened? Uh, not that I recall, and I, I would have turned it down anyway. I didn't feel traumatised at all, and it was a, it was a big adventure for me. Um, one of those things that you know you'll always remember, and uh, but it, it was quite distressing. There was um, particularly with, there was only one person I knew um, who had lost his life. I didn't know him well personally. I had met him once or twice, but one of my uh, one of the, my 
colleagues that work at North Sales that I work with from the same department. He normally sailed on Grimalkin, a little half tonner. And David Sheeran, uh, who owned that, had been lost. Um, it was a very upsetting story, really. It was probably needless that he, he did die. But he got knocked unconscious by, by the boom and his son was on board and he, he thought he was dead. And uh, they laid him downstairs and there was another chap too, I think, that was unconscious as well. Anyway, they thought they were dead. And although the yacht had taken on a fair bit of water, it, um, they thought they'd be safer in their life raft. So he insisted that the rest of the crew abandon ship and they all got into their raft and, and left Grimalkin. As it turned out, Grimalkin was salvaged at the end. It didn't sink. Um, and Dave, and the other chap, from what I was told, he regained consciousness hearing David sort of taking his last breaths um, and he passed away. Had the crew have stayed there, they might have been able to tend to him and kept him alive, I don't know. But that was the problem back then. There was no, no education. Nobody was sort of trained for these situations um, like they are now. And so everyone was sort of of the thought, well, you know, your life raft's the safest place to be in. You know, that's why it's called a life raft. It saves your life. So a lot of people on boats abandoned their boats that, that were later found floating um, and got into rafts. And that's where a lot of people got in strife. The rafts weren't that great back, back in the late 70s. And there were lots of reports of rafts just breaking apart, tearing apart in the waves uh, when they were getting rolled and so forth. So um, it wasn't a safe place to be. And I always remember something Peter Blake always said at one of our SANS briefings years ago is that you you never step up into a raft. Oh, you always step up into a raft, rather. You never step down into a raft. You only get into the raft as your boat's going down. Yeah. So what happened to your yacht? Um, so when we, yeah, when we got to the train station, Michael and one of the other crew actually left us and went off to charter a plane to fly out to try and find it so they could organise it being, being towed, towed home. Uh, they never did find it, um, but it was picked up a day or two later by a, a small Dutch coaster we towed it into somewhere in the UK, I think, Plymouth or Falmouth. And it was it was fixed up and re-rigged and Michael donated it to the um, Royal Yacht Squadron for their youth training scheme for a season uh, before selling it. I don't think he ever sailed again himself. So if you look back, you know, what were some of the things that you did as a crew that you know, ensured your survival that night and the survival of the boat? Uh, what some of the things we did? Well, pretty much as I've sort of mentioned previously, we, we, we uh, it never became a, a concern until we were rolled over, you know. It was uh, when we lost the mast. Okay, we lost the mast because it was, you know, bushes wind and, and something something broke. We never knew what broke. 
every we cut away everything to get rid of the rig. And the only conclusion we had later was that the it was a masthead rig, that the hydraulic backstay ram, um, with all the violent shaking, had had released itself, and the master just tipped forward enough to to uh, break under the compression where it did just above deck level. Um, but uh, so it wasn't until we rolled over that you know, it became a concern. So things things that we did to ensure our survival is, as I've mentioned before, we, we lost our washboard, so we, we uh, broke the table and used the tabletop as, as, a, as, as a washboard and parts of the broken engine box as well to, to uh, keep most of the water out of the boat with the waves crashing over it. Um, Bailed, bailed out most of the water in the inside, had a big tidy up, um, lashed things down that were loose. I mean, there were things like the floorboards, you know, they weren't screwed down, so they were sort of everywhere. And uh, there was a lot of stuff. It was quite common for boats in the UK to store a lot of stuff under the floor in the bilge, you know, like food and cans and packets of stuff. So um, all that had come free and was scattered around because the floorboards went screwed down um, so yeah we just we just made the boat as ship shape as possible and um, all put life jackets on well almost all of us most that we had and uh, yeah just did the best best we could under the circumstances mm. what about any mistakes were there any things that you look back on and think you're a bit perhaps a bit lucky to get away with uh the only thing I can think of, and you've got to remember that I was the youngest youngest person on board, with, uh, apart from Michael, with the least experience in that sort of sailing. Um, so I sort of took direction of the other guys, and the other guys sort of you know, got on and did stuff, and I just tagged along. Um, but one of the things we probably should have ensured was that the life raft had been more secured so that when we had rolled over, it hadn't got loose. And, uh, and and so doing damaged itself by puncturing that top ring. Um, if we'd still kept that down below, or whether it was very tightly secured in the cockpit, um, there were probably no tie down points, you know, like there is these days. Wherever you store a, a raft on on your boat these days, you have to have a good secure points to tie it to, either on the cabin top or in the cockpit or wherever. Um, so yeah, if that had been securely attached, it wouldn't have inflated, and we still would have had it. So that's the main thing I can think of. I'm, I'm guessing that it's had quite a uh, a large imprint or impact on your sort of sailing career, and, and you know the things that you learn from that experience that you've taken into the rest of your sailing career. Yeah, it's been good and bad, Michael. Um, it's good that I gained that experience in those awful conditions and, and survived it and uh, realised that, you know, a, a yacht can with, withstand an awful lot of punishment um, before it, uh, it sinks or whatever and makes you vulnerable. Um, so, yeah, you always stay with, stay with your boat till the bitter end. Um, it was invaluable experience to know that you could survive in such horrendous seas. So in future storms I've been in, you know, you know that you can, can it might be 
pretty uncomfortable, not very pleasant, and the boat might be getting a bit damaged, but you know that you should be able to cope and survive all right. The uh, downside would be that um, you know how bad it can get out there and, uh, and that not everybody does survive in those conditions. Um, so that's quite, quite a concern. So the older I've got, the less gung-ho I've got. When I was young, like most people, you know, you're, you're bulletproof, you can do anything. Um, but the older you get, the wiser you get, and you do realise that uh, there are limitations. And uh, so you do get a bit concerned when things cut up rough. I don't think you're alone in holding that view, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you have spent a lot of your life at sea and, and certainly experienced a handful of other close calls. And I guess perhaps um, the most dramatic was when you sailed from Bermuda to New York, uh, nearly losing the boat three times. Can you just sort of talk to us about what happened on that experience? Yeah, that was the following year. Um, soon after the Fastnet race, I... I uh, decided to sail back to New Zealand and actually jumped on a, a floating footpath, a concrete boat, um, and sailed to the Caribbean and in the hope of sailing home, but that didn't eventuate, so I ended up delivering a boat up to Bermuda. Um, and then from there, we, we'd been, yeah, just before we got to Bermuda on that 12-metre boat, we got hit by a, a nasty rogue wave that did, laid us flat and did a lot of damage to the boat. So we were holed up in Bermuda for six weeks, waiting for spare parts to come out to fix it, during which time an American chap turned up with a, a Morgan 46-foot uh, catch that had been chartering in the Caribbean. And he was looking for crew to get him home to the Great Lakes, or, or get the boat home, rather. So uh, Tim, who was skippering the, the little 12-metre boat we were on, um, he and I decided, yeah, this would be great, because we didn't have any money run out of money and this was a way of earning a bit of money and um, and get, getting some awesome experience. So we helped Ernie sail Celeste across to New York, uh, which was our first leg, which was a seven-day trip. But we did, yeah, we almost lost the boat three times on that trip. The first was the evening we actually left Bermuda. There's a big reef runs around Bermuda and... Um, it's relatively shallow water before you get over the reef, which is several miles out, and then it drops away to thousands of feet. Well, we we left on dusk and headed out through a, a lit channel to get out past the reef, and I wasn't navigating. Tim, Tim was. He was 23, and I was 20 by then, uh, or 19, sorry, I was 19. And... Um, we turned left too early. We, we turned left at the lights, at the last lights that was flashing, but it wasn't the last boy because the last boy didn't have a light flashing on it, but it had similar flashing characteristics. So we hung a left a bit early and soon found the depth sounder registering 60 feet instead of off the scale. So we thought, oh, it's probably a big school of fish. And then uh, soon after that, it was down to 30 feet and we thought, oh, it must be some kelp or something. And then it started reading six feet and we stopped. We thought, no, this is, this is not good. So we got in touch with the guys that we knew up at Bermuda Harbour Radio. They looked on their radar and could see exactly where we were and said, Jesus, guys, you're inside the reef. Um, this is a rock, you know, shallow part of the reef, um, actually on the reef. So uh, they spent 20 minutes 
slowly talking us out of there. So we managed to, to get back into deep water without uh, incident, fortunately. A couple of days later, we awoke to a very airy dawn. It was flat calm, glassy calm, very low swell rolling, but the sunrise was very ominous. It was a blacky yellow colour and just didn't look nice at all. And we would we were motoring. I was motor, uh, driving, uh, steering actually. We were motoring along, and this little whirlwind started coming towards us, which I thought was rather odd, considering there was no wind at all. And uh, it actually came straight at us. I had to divert course to go around it. And then soon after that, the breeze started picking up. Uh, this was probably about seven o'clock in the morning, and um, within within two or three hours, we were getting you know, 60 knot gusts and, and it was increasing. And uh, actually the, the highest wind we recorded was 89 knots. And that was, you know, like four or five hours after there'd been no wind whatsoever. And it was an active front. It was an electrical storm um, approaching us and it was pouring with rain. The rain were like bullets tearing at any exposed skin you had. There was fork lightning just whacking the boat. Oh, wait, not sorry, whacking the boat, fortunately. It was whacking the water all around us. Um, and anything metal on the boat, you got a static shot from. It was really unnerving. And this is the first time that I was really, really scared. I wasn't scared in the fast net race. Um, I guess partly because I, we had a good good experienced crew with me um, so and, and there were a lot of other boats around us too um, anyway but this time I was scared because it was getting so bad so fast and we didn't know why um, the, we, we ran off before it um, had no sail up took all the sail down and we were at times we were surfing down waves up to 16 knots under bare poles almost out of control. We had the engine ticking over, so on the occasions where we broached in the waves, we could we could gun the engine and get, get back running down them again. Um, it was very, very worrying. At one point, I thought about going to get the bolt cutters and cutting the rig away because it was we were just going too fast. Um, we didn't think about putting drogues out. Um, well, we didn't have any drogues. And uh, I think streaming warps wouldn't have had much of, much of an effect. Um, Ernie was downstairs, um, and uh, it was just Tim and I on deck, and we'd we'd take it in turns to to steer, and the other person would sit by the companionway, looking backwards and um, calling the big waves. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite worrying. At one stage, the headsail unrolled itself and uh, I had to go up on the foredeck and manually roll that back in. Um, eventually, Tim went down below and with Ernie, they got hold of a, a weather station on the east coast of the States and told them where we were and they explained to us that we're right in the middle of this active front that was moving very rapidly and it should go through within the next couple of hours. So that was kind of reassuring to know that it would eventually get better. But um, yeah, I, I thought we were done for, I really did. 
Um, I thought that was, you know, we'd never survive that. It just got so bad so fast. Seas only were probably four or five metres high at the end, but they were steep breaking waves. <clears throat> so that was the second incident where I thought we were going to lose it. And then the third one, which is not so dramatic, we were approaching New York Harbour, and in those days there's no, no GPS or chart plotters, as we, uh, as we have the luxury of today. So we were navigating uh, by Loran C, which is a, a radio frequency system using grid charts. And it's not too bad if you're getting, getting good signals, um, but it's not nearly as accurate as, as GPS. So we weren't sure whether we were on the north side of the harbour entrance or the south side. It was pitch black or, you know, these events always are, middle of the night, pouring with rain, blowing 40 plus knots. And um, we picked up a light, a green light. We thought, great, great, that's a channel marker. So we, we headed, headed past that. Um, thinking, yeah, yeah, we should be able to pick up where the channel is now. And as we were going past it, we noticed another light off, this was off our starboard side, another light off our port side a few hundred metres away. And then we suddenly realised that was, the green light was actually a tug and it was towing a barge a few hundred metres away and we were crossing over its um, towing wire which we probably would have done. There would have been a big sag in it, but hey, we might not have done. <laughs> so that was that was a bit interesting. So we bailed out, went behind the barge and followed it for a while. They were trying to get into the harbour that night themselves and they actually got us as far as the entrance to the channel markers. So we were able to then find our way in, but they went out to sea. The weather was so rough that it was too rough for them to go. And so they, they went out to sea for a a day or two, turned into quite a storm. We went and anchored in Sandy Hook. We couldn't get into New York Harbour, so we, we turned left going in the entrance and anchored behind Sandy Hook and woke up in the morning to find ourselves surrounded by bamboo stakes that we'd anchored inside a, a fish trap. Um, so that was quite interesting, but we had to stay there all, all that day and all the next night before the wind abated enough to get across to New York and then Ernie, Ernie flew home and Tim and I spent the next two weeks with Tim's girlfriend who joined us um, going up the Hudson River and up the Erie Canal into Lake Ontario, across the Lake Erie and up the Detroit River into Lake St. Clair to Grace Point where Ernie kept the boat. So that was that was pretty exciting. Mm. Well, certainly uh, a bit more dramatic OE than most people do, that's for sure. And it, and it feels like, you know, drama tended to follow you um, because later in life you were involved in the early days of the Westpac rescue helicopter. I think, in fact, you're involved in the first ever rescue. Um, before we go into that one, just tell us, how did you become involved with the rescue helicopter? Well, uh, it's a little bit funny in a way. Um, I won't go into too much detail as to why, but uh, basically the... Um, Mary McCullum put out a May Day and off the north coast of the country and um, oh, off the north of the country and, and so the Westpac Rescue in Auckland got involved because back in those days the North Northland West, uh, helicopter didn't have a winch 
and somehow or other she must have asked for her boat to be um, salvaged. She didn't want to leave it because it was her home. She'd been living on it for years and she was on her way back to New Zealand um, just for the summer. She was an American lady, but she'd been cruising down here in the summer and, and going to the islands in the winter. And uh, so anyway, I got a... So Westpac agreed that they try and find someone to, to sail a boat home after they picked her up. So they called a chap called Steve McIntyre, who's a, a well-known delivery skipper, and I think he also run the cable cable ship across the Cook Strait. But he was, he said, well, he was a bit busy at the time, uh, for reasons I won't go into in this interview. But um, <clears throat> he suggested they call Craig Torkler, a good friend of his. So they rang Craig, and Craig said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be up for that. That sounds like a bit of fun. And uh, he said, but I'll need, I'll need a mate to go. I'm not doing it alone. I need a crew. So he said, I'm going to call Steve Ashley. So he gave me a call. And the two of us uh, drove straight over to Mechanics Bay, and within a few moments, we were in a helicopter heading north. And so, what happened in the the rescue? You know, what did you what what was your involvement? Yeah, so we we flew up to Kaitaia, landed there. The boats, the boat, we didn't know much about. Um, we just knew that it was, we were just told it was a round-the-world solo yachtswoman who needed to be rescued. So Craig and I conjured up visions of it being a, a, an open 60 with a French young French lady on board. So we thought this would be really cool. Um, we'll take, take, we'll get, the, get the lady off and then we'll do a, do a quick lap around New Zealand in this you know, big race boat before we brought it home. So it was all sounding pretty good. So we, <clears throat> we went up to Kaitaia, landed there, and waited for the BP air ambulance plane to go out and actually locate exactly where, where the yacht was because it was 127 miles north northeast of North Cape. So it was really right on the very outer range of the, the helicopter. Um, before we left Mechanics Bay, we stripped out the, the seats in the back of the helicopter and put a long-range fuel tank in. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, which you're not allowed to do anymore because you've got to have seats in the back of the helicopter and everybody has to be strapped in these days um, with health and safety, of course. Anyway, so once the BP Air Ambulance plane had located the... Um, the vessel, uh, we were ready to, to go. And I said to the pilot, I said, look, what should we wear? Are we likely to be put in the water to get onto this boat or are you going to put us on deck? And he said, no, no, there's no way I'll be putting you in the water. If, we, if I can't land you on the deck, you're not getting out of the chopper. So Craig and I just dressed in our wet weather gear. We'd taken wetsuits with us, but we left those behind uh at Kaitaia and um off we flew to North Cape and landed on the cliffs at North Cape where the Northland helicopter had flown up and put a couple of 44 gallon drums of aviation fuel there for us to top our tanks up before we flew out to sea so we flew out there it was a, an hour or so flight and eventually the pilot said, oh, there it is down there. <clears throat> we looked out the window. All you could see was white caps. It was blowing 40-plus knots from the southwest. And uh, it's just, just in amongst the white 
bike caps our hearts sunk when we saw this tiny little white speck of a boat that was only 24 foot long as it turned out it was an american pacific sea craft 24 a variation capable boat but it was only 24 feet <clears throat> so i thought oh that was a bit of a downer um so anyway this was the first rescue as you mentioned michael that um that westpac had done out at sea and in all previous rescues, they'd always send the paramedic down first on the winch to stabilise the patient before winching them up. So Bruce Kerr got that privilege of being winched down. And the next thing we knew was the winchman pulled up this frayed piece of wire and uh, <clears throat> with a bit of a worried look on his, his face. And we thought, oh, OK. We looked out the window and there was poor Bruce halfway up the mast around the spreaders. The, um, he'd got tangled in the spreaders and the winch cable had broken and going under, under one of the spreaders. So now there were two people on the boat to be rescued and no hook on the end of the winch wire. So Craig came up with this wonderful idea that we should just jump in the water and swim to the boat. And I wasn't so keen on doing this because I could see that the boat was drifting along at probably two or three, maybe, maybe more knots. Um, and if we'd missed it and didn't get on board, then how were we going to get back into the helicopter? And and I remember the pilot saying there was no way we were going to get off the, the helicopter if, if he couldn't put us on the deck. So, um, so anyway, there didn't seem to be any choice. So there was no direct communications with the Rescue Coordination Centre in Wellington at that time with the helicopter. So the helicopter relayed a message to the BP Air Ambulance plane to relay to Wellington to say, could we have permission to drop these guys in the water to swim to the boat? You know, you've got to remember that we had about 15 minutes of, of hovering time out there before the chopper had to turn around and head to land or it would have run out of fuel. So time was of the essence. We didn't get a reply. So we thought, well, we've got to do something. So we actually threw the, um, the helicopter's life raft into the water um, downwind of where the yacht was drifting to um, and, and and the yacht drifted straight onto the raft and Bruce was actually able to retrieve the raft out of the water. So we thought, oh, well, it could be done. So um, Craig's a few months younger than me, so he, he went in first and uh, managed to get onto, onto the deck. So it was my turn. I remember getting out on the skids and um, got a tap on the shoulder and jumped in the water and swam like fury and uh, you could swim onto the boat. The boat was rolling so much in the seas you could actually swim onto the side deck as it dipped into the waves. And then there were four of us on this 24-footer and the helicopter hightailed it off, off to land. It was late in the afternoon um, and it was very cold. It was in uh, September and... Uh, so we took stock of the situation, um, made sure Mary was, was okay. She was, she'd fractured a couple of vertebrae in her back. She'd been knocked down. She, uh, earlier that morning, she'd um, gone up on deck to um, tend to the sails and just as a wave knocked the boat flat and she fell backwards down the companionway and cracked her vertebrae on the fiddle rail across the stove and then fell down and cracked a cheekbone and um, hurt her ribs too, I think. 
she still had enough strength before pain sort of set in to, to get back on deck and, and uh, pull her sails down. Um, although she'd been in some windy weather for quite a while, she still had a trysail up apparently, but she got the headsail down. And uh, so when she radioed through and gave information, she said, well, we've, I've got a trysail up there and because we wanted to know what sails she had and, and how we could get the boat home if we did get on board. She said, well, I've got a little Yanmar engine and I've still got the trysail and uh, the, the headsail's actually blown out, but I've got a spare headsail that can be put up. So we thought, okay, that's all right then. And uh, but when we got on board the boat, um, she said, oh, it's actually my birthday today, so I apologise for not bringing a birthday cake. And uh, and Bruce tried to tend to her, but he he'd never he's not a yachty, and he was being violently seasick, so Mary didn't get a lot of care for a while. But we got the engine started, and uh, we did the best we could. The course to Opur, which is where we were going to head, was straight into the wind, so there was no way we could motor with a little 10-horse Yanmar on that little boat into over 40 knots of breeze. So the best we could do was head towards East, East Cape, running parallel down the coast so that we weren't getting further offshore, so that we weren't out of range for the helicopter that was going to come back the next day after repairing its winch wire. So we spent the night motoring, Craig and I taking turns of, of trying to warm up down below and, and steering the boat. It was really cold and we were soaked through from swimming to the boat too. Um, the next morning, uh, the sun was out and the wind had dropped to 25, 30 knots. The sea was down a bit, so things things were looking pretty good. Um, we, we heard on the radio the chopper would be back around midday. Um, about 11.30, the BP air ambulance plane flew out and circled, circled around us. And because uh, they had to come out and find us before the chopper could come out because we we thought we turned our, the EPIRB off. Mary had put the EPIRB on so that so the chopper, once the, yeah, if I remember the EPIRB was on and we were able to hone in on the final uh, flight into, into finding the boat. But we'd gone and turned it off thinking, well, it's not an emergency anymore. Anyway, plane came out, found us, chopper came out afterwards but before the chopper arrived the plane had come out with some extra diesel and some dry clothes and some sails that they'd found for us overnight which we, we'd requ requested and it was a bit of funny story here it was circling around and we were waiting for them to drop this stuff down to us and we just happened to look behind us about two miles away as it was doing a big bank and all the stuff fell out of the door and uh it's one of the Westpac helicopter guys was on the back of the plane tending to the stuff and um, yeah, as, as the plane banked, it all fell out prematurely. So we had to go back and pick that up. Soon after that, the helicopter came out and uh, Mary was really freaking out a bit. She was in a lot of pain and she wasn't looking forward to being winched out of the boat. And Bruce, Bruce tried to calm her and said, look, you know, everything will be all right. We'll get you out onto the cockpit. I'll put a harness on you. When the, when, the winch, when the hook comes down, we'll both be hooked on together. I'll be holding on to you and we'll be going up into the chopper together. Well, it didn't quite transpire quite like that. Um, Craig and I high-lined the winch, uh, the 
hop into the cockpit. We hooked it onto, well, Bruce hooked it onto Mary and himself. And uh, there was a jerk as we, we fell into a trough and Mary disappeared up by herself. Um, and Bruce was left behind. Um, on the um, on those hooks, there's a, there's a big hook, and just above it, there's a smaller hook. And normally, you'd, for human life, you'd only be hooked onto the the big hook. But there's only room for for one one thing to be hooked onto that hook. So, I think Bruce had hooked onto the smaller hook, but he obviously hadn't clipped in properly, or there wasn't. Yeah. Anyway, something went wrong. So that was kind of a bit funny in a way, looking back on it. Then the, we've highlighted the hook back and again got, got Bruce up into the chopper and then the chopper buggered off and um, Craig and I were left out there alone again. And uh, we spent the next day motor sailing to Opera. Um, the headsail that Mary said had been on board was, was too big. No, it was too long in the hoist. Um, Simon Willis sails had some tracker sails that they'd given the Westpac guys during the night and out of the three sails that he gave us there was one little headsail we could use so we just made a sail with the headsail. Oh, I did, did forget to mention when we got to the boat although Mary said there was a trysail there there was only the clue of the trysail left on the end of the boom the rest had been blown away. Yeah. So how, how many rescues overall were you involved in and essentially was your job to sail stricken boats to safety? Yeah, uh, correct. From then then on, there were three. Of, we only did three of them in the end, um, and that ranged between um, 1994, uh, which was the Mighty Mary 2, Mary's boat, and then there was a Canadian 36-foot steel boat in November 97, and then there was a, a Kiwi guy uh, off the west coast here, uh, about 60 miles off off um, Manukau and a Gladden 36, and that was in 2002. So we did a lot of training with with Westpac, but we only ended up doing three rescues. And in later years, the Northland helicopter got a winch, and so they they were probably doing rescues up there in that part of the country. And we carried on doing training with them for a number of years after that, but there were never any rescues that needed to be done where it required, you know, nobody being left on the boat to, to sail at home. Yeah. I guess you talked earlier on about uh, safety requirements. You know, there was not a lot that um, vessels needed to sort of for that fast net race. You know, things have changed a lot over the years for both vessels and skippers. How significant do you think these changes have been to ensure safety at sea? Oh, hugely significant. Um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't like to say all the people that were lost in the Fastnet race would have would have survived had they been educated better and their boats had been better equipped. Well, maybe not necessarily better equipped, but um, but better prepared. Like I said, we lost our washboards because there were no, no lanyards on them. You couldn't tie them in. Um, the stove wasn't pinned, so it could leap off its, its gimbals and uh, break free. I mean, these are the sort of things that are done these days, just a, a matter of course. You know, they have to be done. Um, simple things like that. Um, 
you know, we broke a window, but that wasn't from a wave, that was from the, the stove. Um, so having storm shutters wouldn't have helped us probably, and we wouldn't have put them on anyway, um, because the with the forecast for bad weather wasn't wasn't there. Didn't know there was bad weather coming. And the windows were pretty tiny on that, that yacht anyway. But there's been a, a lot of lessons learned from that race. I mean, life raft manufacturers, you know, they've upped their game and made rafts much stronger than they were back in those days, so they don't fall apart so easily. Um, yeah, there's a num number of things that have been learnt, and it's unfortunate that it took took a uh, an event like that to, to cause the change. And the same with the Sydney Hobart race, the bad one, you know, more lessons were learnt from that race too. It's... It's, yeah, there's been a lot of positives that have come out of it. But also a few, could touch on a few negatives too. And that's, I kind of, I'm a bit old school and a bit gung-ho, but people are a bit overcautious these days, <clears throat> I find, which was good and bad. But, um, you know, if there's a really bad weather out there now and the forecasters, you know, for gale or storm force winds, then a lot of racing is cancelled, not able to be run. So people struggle to gain experience in um, a sort of, you know, local um, conditions so that when they get caught offshore in, in bad weather, they haven't got that experience to, um, you know, to help them. Yeah, even goes down to dinghy racing. I got very frustrated years ago when I was racing up at the Hobsonville Yacht Club in my A-class cap. They'd cancel races when wind warnings were out, but up in the upper harbour, you know, it might be might be blowing, you know, 20, 30 knots out, out off the off of Tagapuna, and sure, you wouldn't want to be out there in the nor'easterly, but in the upper harbour, it's really sheltered waters, and you couldn't get into trouble up there, and there was less wind, but because there was a wind warning out, we weren't allowed to race. So, you know, it can be a little bit over over cautious. Mm. How, how much sailing do you still do? And, and I'm guessing and hoping things are a little less dramatic these days. Yeah, uh, I don't do as much as I used to. I used to live and breathe sailing ever since I was about 10 or 11. I just couldn't get enough. I'd, I'd go out there and sit, sit becalmed all day in the fog, you know, if, if that's the conditions of the day. And I'd be really happy doing that. Um, these days, being a yacht rigger as well, working on yachts, you know, every day of the week pretty much, the novelty's kind of waned somewhat over the years. Um, so I don't do as much as I, I do. I still have my um, A-class catamaran, which I race. We've got our nationals next week at Howick, and I'll be competing in that. Um, but other than that, I do the odds odd delivery um, with, with friends, um, but not a huge amount of racing around the cans anymore. Just doesn't appeal to me anymore. Four years ago, I went to the dark side and bought a launch, and Vanessa are just loving the stress-free boating that, that a launch gives you. You don't have to worry about having and procrastinating about whether or not you should put a reef in as the breeze pipes up for getting the spinnaker down. How on earth are we going to get it down now that it's blowing 30 knots? You know, and there's just the two of us. Um, all I have to do is worry about how much throttle to, to give the boat and slow it down a little bit if the conditions <coughs> dictate. 
Sounds to me like you deserved it anyway, so so well done. Hey, look, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to this one because I'm guessing you've had a few wipeouts uh, in your time. Uh, we've already heard of a few already, but um, let us know, what is your worst wipeout ever? Um, there, there has been a, a few. Some of them being, being on smaller boats um, in the harbour. There's been some quite funny ones, but um, probably the... <clears throat> The most worrying one at the time was when I was competing in the 1990 Round New Zealand race uh, with Craig Torkler on head office of Ross 35, and we we were running. We were probably somewhere offshore, off around about Westport, um, and the breeze had been increasing during the night, and we were running pretty much dead down downwind and 40 plus knots and just had a double reef main up. But the boat was just flying and it was surfing down. I mean, it was dark, so I couldn't tell you how big the waves were. But I just remember the acceleration of surfing down these waves at, you know, 20 plus knots. And you were, it was like being in a dinghy. You could, it was skipping, skipping across the wavelets down the face of the big waves, just like a dinghy up on the plane. It was just awesome. Anyway, this carried on for you know, a couple of hours or so, and then I, we took off down one wave and got to the bottom and, and just kept going. And uh, the boat just stood up on its end. I was—I just remember sticking an arm around a, a runner winch and just hanging on. And I don't know how vertical the boat got, but I know I could see she buried herself right back to the hatch. And the rudder was well out of the water because I had one helm on the uh, one hand on the on the tiller, and there was certainly the rudder wasn't in the water. And um, the boat just stood up on its end, and then it it fell over on its side and went upright. And at that stage, I was really concerned because the boat wasn't moving um, from doing over twenty knots to to having no feel on the helm. It was just dead in the water and it felt like we were full of water. And I was yelling at Craig. Um, I said, you know, Craig, Craig, are you all right down there? Are we full of water? And poor old Craig, he'd been sleeping on the starboard saloon berth and uh, woke up upside down in the toilet compartment with a whole lot of stuff on top of him, not knowing where the hell he was, what was going on. So it took him a took him a little while to 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 come out and and uh, answer me. By that stage, the boat had got moving again, and he he said that we were dry down below. But yeah, that was a bit concerning for a, a while there. I can only assume it was a breaking wave that we'd surfed down, and when we got to the bottom, we were sort of stuck in all the white water, and uh, the boat was a bit sluggish to get going again. Plus, we as I said, we had a double reef main, so the sail area wasn't very high and they were big waves, so we didn't collect too much wind to start with, I guess. But that was probably probably one of the most worrying parts of that particular race. Um, yeah, well, and where you were on in the country as well, you know, people talk about if you're sailing around New Zealand is just as dangerous um, as sailing anywhere in the world, and if you're on the West Coast, it's... Uh, so obviously not a lot of berths that you can come into uh, around. No, well there isn't, and it's um, and the next next night actually got got windier. It was gusting well over sixty knots for a while, and we had we had a wave come up and dump in a cockpit and wash everything out. 
and we lost all our power at about that time as well because we'd um, we was yeah we'd left we hadn't been able to use the engine for a, a few couple of days because the conditions were so rough so the batteries were down so when we'd done our radio skid that evening we'd uh, linked the house and engine bank together and we forgot to unlink them after the radio skid so uh, around about midnight when it was blowing well we figured it was muslin blowing about 70 knots um we didn't know where we were we were closing in on Pusiga we were only a few hours away from Pusiga point and the sat nav went down everything went down and so yeah that was that was a bit concerning then as well we had to hand crank the engine but we hadn't ever we hadn't actually done that it was on the list of things to do before we left and we should have done it but we ran out of time and when it came to the time when we needed to crank it to get the engine going to charge the batteries the crank handle didn't fit very well into the shaft on the engine and it took us an hour and a lot of skinned knuckles before we did get it started yeah well, I feel like we could talk for hours. You've got so many stories, um, but um, I really appreciate the fact that you've shared um, the story of one of the most famous races uh, in, in history, that 1979 Fastnet race uh, predominantly. So thanks for your time. Really appreciate you joining uh, Broadreach Radio today. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity, Michael. It's been, been fun. Thank you. It was once again my pleasure to bring you another episode of Broadreach Radio, so thanks for tuning in. We've lined up some extra special guests for another one next week, so keep an eye out for that. It's one I'm certainly looking forward to bringing to you. In the meantime, take care. 